Weighing Machine was created to help you, the financial advisor or investor, reach your long-term financial goals. Each episode, your hosts, Rusty Vanneman and I, Robin Murray, cut through the market glamour to find the time-tested principles that help investors succeed. The Weighing Machine is inspired by the classic investing saying attributed to Benjamin Graham. The stock market is a voting machine in the short term and a weighing machine over the long run. In other words, emotion and expectations drive short-term market movement, but fundamentals and valuations determine returns over time. Welcome to The Weighing Machine. Enjoy, and as always, let us know what you think. On the podcast today, we have a great conversation about creative ways to diversify portfolios, including a review and outlook of the commodity markets and even cryptocurrencies. That's with our guest, Sal Ghiberti, president and founder of Tucrium Trading. Welcome to The Wang Machine. I'm Rusty Vanneman. Quick housekeeping note, co-host Robin Murray won't be with us this week, but she will be with us next week. So let's bring in our guest, Sal Ghiberti, president and founder of Tucrium Trading. Welcome, Sal. Thanks, Rusty. Always good to be talking with you. This is, you are on our short list of repeat guests. You were on here over three years ago now. It's amazing how time flies. I remember that. And it it doesn't seem like three years. It was good fun then, I, and we're going to have good fun now. Two quick memories. One, we went out for a great meal. We did. At my favorite French restaurant in Omaha, Nebraska. Maybe one of my favorite restaurants in America, La Bouvette. It was a chilly night, and we had a great warm meal. And uh, my other memory is when you guys put out a, a PR on our podcast on the weighing machine, you guys called it the Wang machine, W-A-N-G, Wang, which may yeah. be a better name, actually. I, I don't know. I was told actually when we caught the mistake, never to Google that. So uh, <laughs> we'll take it from there. <laughs> well, again, it probably is a better name. I don't know. All right. So before we get started, one thing that has changed with the weighing machine over the last three years is we now ask our guests for kind of something I think is kind of fun. And that is their walk-up song. So you're a batter. You're coming up to bat. What is the song that everybody in the stadium can hear? Rusty, you know there's only one answer with our, our biggest <laughs> fund and what's going on in the news now. Rain is a good thing by Luke Bryan, where rain makes corn. Corn makes All right. Do you know what? We do not have that many country songs as our opening songs, and I'm glad you put that one on there. That's great. Fantastic. Awesome. All right. So there's obviously going to be some people listening to this podcast that heard you back in 2018, but nonetheless, we have some new people. So please give us a refresher on your background and a Tucrium trading. Sure. I've been around a while. I started trading leaded gasoline for Cargill in 1982 and have traded um, energy and ag commodities ever since. It's been been really um, a good ride, very interesting, lots of fun. Uh, as, as you've heard me say, I'm not smart enough to just trade securities. Stocks are, are much more difficult than commodities. Commodities are, are my thing. And that's that's what I do. And through a, a long period of trading, trading and, and brokering of commodities, I ended up in starting the uh, an ethanol desk, basically. I started the ethanol swap, as you and I, I think, have spoken about. And that got me into trading about 30 different commodities for a desk that, that traded off of SockGen's balance sheet. And it was good fun. And during that time, we were doing some very big over-the-counter trades. That was my, my job to provide over-the-counter liquidity to big, big futures players, where the futures contracts didn't quite suit them for, for their exact needs. And it was a wonderful experience and, and, and learning. And that's where I learned about ETFs. Somebody called me and said, I, I need you to come listen to this 
person who's starting an oil ETF. And I actually didn't know what an ETF was at that time. And when I heard the concept of an ETF or exchange-traded product, which technically these things are, most of these things are, where you could put something inside of a wrapper and it trades very efficiently and transparently on the New York Stock Exchange, you didn't need a futures account. I just thought it was, was brilliant. I thought I could do it better with energy. And I and there were nobody doing ag. That's what blew me away. No one was doing agriculture at all. And, and being ag-centric from my both my, my upper and, and my professional life, I couldn't believe there wasn't, say, a corn ETF or a wheat ETF. And, and that just was shocking to me. So I started Tucran. And that's, that's what we did. And that's how, how we got here. So you have over three decades of experience. And, and you talked about why commodities make sense in a multi-asset portfolio. Again, back on our podcast in 2018. Again, give us a refresh on why commodities make sense for a multi-asset portfolio, including exposure to the ag markets. Sure. Well, commodities are a diversifier. They're, they're plain and simple diversifier. So yeah, apparently there are still people doing 60-40, but if you, if you use that as your base model, and I hope people are moving away from that. But if you take part of your 60 and put it into commodities, and again, stocks and commodities are about equally as volatile, as you know. But what you do is stocks and commodities, one zigs when the other zags. And I, I think I've used this example before, where if you are a good picker of, say, airline stocks, and you know that airlines' biggest exposure is their energy cost. When energy costs go up, that quarter, if there's an energy shock, you're going to see those stocks take a hit. But over time, because you're a good stock picker, they're going to go up and they're, they're going to give you good returns. So what you want to do is own some oil along with those stocks. When the oil shock goes up, your transport stocks might go down, but your oil stock, your oil holding will go up and you're diversified. It, it basically stabilizes your portfolio when you replace one volatile asset class stocks with another volatile asset class commodities that offsets. They, they zig when the other zags. So yeah, that, that touches a point. So let's say on that 60-40 portfolio, it's like, how do you kind of like bring commodities into it? Again, as you mentioned, Commodities have volatility like stocks, but they have low correlations to stocks like bonds. So I'm sure you've answered this question before. Like, what do people take? I mean, how do they put commodities in? Do they take a little out of the stocks and a little out of the bonds? Well, they used to just take out of stocks. Now that bonds don't really return anything and people are getting kind of nervous um, that bonds, you know, maybe moving in another direction from what we've been accustomed, they're taking out of both. So what they're doing is allocating a little bit to commodities. And, you know, I'm not an investment advisor, but yeah. people are doing it from from 5% to, you know, some portfolios as high as 20 or 25% with commodities. And that commodity exposure may not be just through an ETF. It may be uh, through actual ownership of forestry or, or forest land or something like that, where that's producing lumber, say. So there are ways to do it. It diversifies, it stabilizes the portfolio. The allocation is a smart one to do. And to start, people should use a well, you know, a, a, just a, a diversified index. And there are many of them. You have to look at them, each one, know what you own, as in the case of any ETF, because there are a lot of different commodity baskets that some are energy weighted. Most don't have enough ags in them, and ags are really important. Some are too energy weighted, too metals weighted, not enough ags weighted. You have to look into so one thing you talked about is just, and I think that was a really great point, is sort of a frame of reference how investors are using commodities and the allocations are anywhere from five to 25%. I mean, you gotta give credit to some of those investors. I mean, that's pretty progressive thinking because commodities have just so dramatically underperformed the last 10 years up until the last year, of course. I almost think like back in the 70s, I wonder what people were allocating to commodities back then. I bet they were much heavier weights because of course they were performing and we had inflation. Yeah, I would think I, you know, you'd have to go back and look at the studies that that even predates me, Rusty. So that's no. 
<laughs> All right. Okay. So let's talk about the grain market. So they've been very exciting this year. They've obviously had returns that have even blown out the stock market here of late, particularly over the last year, even. And, you know, the, the one year returns to the stock market are great. They're even better for commodities, they're even better for the grains. What's going on there? What is the outlook? And I guess I have some more questions about the eggs after that. So why are agricultural prices up so much? Agricultural prices are up so much because of supply and demand. And just a quick lesson, ags are, are actually a pretty simple and pretty easy thing to trade because they naturally, like, like most other commodities, gravitate toward their cost of production. But farmers around the world by every country are paid and are supplemented in some way to, to grow food. They're paid to grow agricultural crops because the worst thing that can happen is, is people run out of food. So farmers are incented to produce, even sometimes when it when it's not very profitable because the government supports them. So the, the normal trading range for, for ags, especially the big ags we're talking about here in the ETFs, corn, soybeans, wheat, sugar, is breaking. And you don't have to be in the ag business to understand what breakeven is. You look at a continuation chart. So if you use corn as an example, corn trades at about $3.50 on the futures as a breakeven. And until you know the middle midsummer of 2020, a year ago or so, that's where corn had been trading for literally six years. It had gone sideways for six years. But we've seen corn prices almost, in fact, corn prices have doubled from $350 to $7 in less than, I think, 10 months from August 2020 to whenever they hit $7 a few weeks back. That's the third time that that's happened since 2008. So, you know, if you do the math in 13 years, 14 years, you've had an asset, a large asset, a really liquid, huge, important asset, corn, double three times from its cost of production. So what happens is, you know, things are trading at their cost of production, they sit there and everything is supply and demand. And in ags, there's always enough. And usually there's plenty. And sometimes there's just enough. And we're in a period where there's just enough. Why did that happen? China had a crop failure last year. China had a crop failure and they came into the world market buying like crazy. And what happened was they bought Brazilian soybeans. It just happened to be when their when their crops failed, the Brazilian soybean crop. And Brazil's the number one producer of soybeans in the world. And they're the number one exporter of soybeans in the world. China literally bought so many soybeans from Brazil that Brazil had to start importing soybeans. Where's the next spot to turn? The world's number two producer and exporter of soybeans is the United States. China came and started buying soybeans from us. They got what they needed, but that really drove the price up of soybeans. And then China had to start buying corn. And there are a variety of reasons for that. One is China didn't have as much corn as they thought they had, and that's obvious. Two, the crop failure, you know, people don't stop eating. So this is this is key with ags, the whole supply demand picture. You're balanced, you're trading at break even on a normal scenario because governments subsidize. And then if it doesn't rain, or in the case of China, last year it rained too much, but most of the time it doesn't rain. Nobody in New York is going to skip their bagel if it doesn't rain in Kansas and there's no wheat. Nobody is going to skip using corn, which by the way, is in everything. So, you know, if you pull into a service station to fill up your average SUV in America, you're using about a bushel of corn because of the ethanol content in that gasoline, that's corn's second largest use in the world and in the United States. The first largest use is, is to feed animals. So if, if your kids jump out of the car and buy a beef jerky stick or a chicken taco or get any kind of animal protein snack, that's corn's number one use. Number three use is, is to sweeten drinks. So if you pull drink out of the cooler, you're consuming corn. And if anybody's taking notes, paper, all papers held together with cornstarch. There's no way to not use corn. It's everywhere. So the point is, if it doesn't rain, you end up with a demand 
that outstrips supply. And that is what we have now. And that was literally because it rained too much in China. China's buying all of the world's crops. And the reason this is happening is just to give an example. Normally in the United States, we have about 30 to 40 days supply of soybeans left at the end of a year. So remember, a crop year starts in the springtime. Let's just say you plant crops in the spring, you grow them in the summer, you harvest them in the autumn, nothing's happening in the winter. So you have to wait until the winter goes by. You have a big pile. You harvest it, you have a big pile of grain. The whole world's taking out of that pile. And they take out of that pile in the winter when nothing's growing. They take out of that pile in the spring when you plant the seeds in the ground. They take out of that pile in the summer when the, the, the seeds are growing. And they take out of the pile in the autumn while the crops are ripening and being harvested. And the entire year has passed. By the end of that year, the pile's pretty small. Generally, that pile of soybeans in the United States is 30 to 40 days supply. This year, it's 10 days. And the reason is China came in and bought all the world's soybeans. If you only have a 10-day supply and you end up with a crop problem like dryness, uh, say, in the U.S. in July or in August for soybeans and July for corn, you end up with a reduced crop, a reduced output. We've literally had eight perfect years of weather. That's why you had corn trading at 350 for six years. It, it, it was coming down off of its last high. It took two years to get back down to break even. So we've had eight years without a drought. And we don't have a drought now, but it's dry. And it's dry enough now where the world sees China still buying grain, reduced grain inventories because China bought all the grain, and not enough rain in some key parts of the United States, particularly up in the Dakotas. And so you have a supply-demand situation where we are actually going to use more grains than we produce this year. If you look back at a chart of the combined use of corn, soybeans, and wheat since 1960, Every single year, the combined global use of corn, soybeans, and wheat is either a record or it's the second highest ever because it just misses being a record. Every year without fail since 1960. So the use, because of just, for example, corn, all those uses that corn has, we're using so much of it all the time and weather is a variable. So your demand is not, when you look at a chart of demand, it's a pretty steady upward sloping to the right line. When you look at a chart of supply, it actually has some zigs and zags in it. And you know, if you see a supply, it's very simple. Demand stays steady or is growing. Supply grows along with demand over time, but every few years has a hiccup. And that's what we're experiencing. So it sounds like there was a pretty compelling argument short term for commodities in particular for the ags, but it'll, it sounds like maybe more intermediate term. And I guess when you're building a diversified portfolio, you're still trying to build in, I guess, hedges. Correct. And, and you know, the best time to buy grains is when they're flatlined, when they're boring, no one's talking about them, they're sitting at break even, and you buy them and park them. You put your, you know, we've had so many advisors call us and say, I'm putting 1% of my portfolio in, in say, your corn fund. As an example, yeah. we've had many people say that. And okay, great. They did that. And guess what? People in our funds in the past 10 months have made literally centimillions. When you add it all up and we look at the inflows of what came in last year, just before things lifted off. So, you know, people were really paying attention or starting to layer in because the message is getting out there. People don't think about ads. You're, you're a big help to us, Rusty, in, in venues like this, but people, we're, we're literally the only ag evangelists out there in terms of the investment world um, for allocations. Just, and just a real quick, I mean, I, I like talking big picture in here and stuff, but how many different ETFs do you offer? We offer five. We offer a corn ETF, a soybean ETF, 
a wheat ETF and a, and a sugar ETF. And then we offer one that's a fund of funds. It's 25% of each of those. Because one of the, the, the most frequent questions we get is, well, I don't know which one to buy and I want exposure, so I'll buy them all. Yeah. And that's, that's what we offer. You know, just one quick aside. I think I might've told you the story. I, I believe I, I was doing live television one time and kind of one of my interesting ETF picks was corn. And they actually asked me how to spell it. And remarkably, I spelled it corn, you know, K-O-R-N. And then I realized, wait a second, that's like the rock band, not the crop. I can't even believe I said it. I don't know where that oh, came from. Funny. Anyway, they invited me back, so I guess yeah, it worked. That's good. Our ticker actually for that is corn, C-O-R-N. Yep. And I've actually had people be confused. I've been at, you know, given talks and people come up to me, what, you know, what's your fund? It's the corn fund. What's the symbol? C-O-R-N. They come back and say, what's your symbol against it? No, it really is the same. <laughs> and in fact, the, the SEC, because we're, you know, we're restricted because of basically public securities that we issue. They have told me that it, whether I'm talking about corn, you know, the corn markets or corn RETF, they are assuming it's the same thing. They're assuming whenever I'm speaking, even about the commodity, I'm selling my fund because it, it's a great ticker. Let's face it. It's a good ticker. So I bet you get this question all the time. What about global warming? How's that going to impact the ag markets? Well, it already has. It already has. It's a great question. And, and how it's impacting is in several ways. One, warmer climates hold more moisture and rain makes grain. Like I say, unless you're China in 2020, where it rained too much, but rain makes grain. So we've actually, I think part of the reason why we production has kept up with demand in, in the big ags is because of global warming. When you have eight years in a row with no weather problems, with no drought, that means, that's astounding. That's really astounding. And that's what we've had. And I, I think that that is is because of global warming. Then you, you've got a lot of innovation coming that's more long-term, and we can talk about that later if we get to it. But you know, global warming is kind of getting, the dialogue around it is such where people actually think it's better to have meat from a Petri dish than meat from a cow because cows you know, flatulate and cause global warming and meat in a Petri dish is just meat from a Petri dish. Now, to get people to eat that and to get it mass produced at, at a cost will take some time, but it, it's going to be done. It is going to be done. So, you know, Elon Musk headed to Mars with not much room. He's going to love that, right? You're going to be on a spaceship and get to eat a steak because you you raised it right there. You didn't need a field and a cow. But here on good old planet Earth, I, you know, I don't know how that's that's going to go. <laughs> so I liked how you moved into the future because I was going to ask in terms of you know, tradable markets, are there going to be like the future of the ag markets? Are we going to be able to have pretty soon an ETF on almonds or pistachios or... I mean, what is the future of ag and commodities, in your opinion, from an investable standpoint? You know what? The, the, I mean, the Wall Street Journal future of food right now is going on. They're, they're, I think it starts tonight or something. But it, there's so much innovation going on. It's astounding. And I don't know. I mean, what's happening now, is, I'd say in the 10-year the and under picture, big grains are the place that you know, money's going to flow as it as it has been doing, um, especially soybeans as they bring in this new renewable diesel, they call it. Some people say that could be as big as ethanol. I disagree, but it's going to be big and have an effect. So you're going to need soybeans to produce that oil. I think meats, animal proteins, the global population is still going up. I mean, you, you can read all, you know, the Chinese are encouraging, they went to a three-child policy this year. The global population grows by the population of California times two every year. So everybody knows how crowded California is. Multiply by two, add that to the world population. That's how much the world population is, is increasing. And animal proteins are a very big deal and always will be. And the consumption of animal proteins is increasing. And to feed animals, you need grains. So I think grains and meats for the next 10 years are a really big deal. 
after that, I think it's anyone's guess. I mean, no Warner in California, you, there may be less homes in 10 years, not more. We don't know how that's all going to play out. People have asked us to do all kinds, you know, a rice ETF. We can't do a rice ETF because rice, most rice is grown and consumed in the same country. Even though rice is grown all over the world, the people who grow their rice eat their rice. Whereas in wheat, there are, you know, a dozen different countries that not only grow a whole lot of wheat and consume it, they also export it. In soybeans, there are three major exporting countries, Brazil, the United States, and Argentina. And in corn, there are, you know, 10 top exporting countries that matter. And so you can grow and export, and that gets a tradable commodity. Whereas rice is grown and consumed. You can't export it. It doesn't trade much internationally. So there's not going to be an ETF on rice. What about something like carbon? Carbon will be big. Assuming that everything keeps going, carbon is going to be gigantic. There are people who think carbon will be bigger than oil. I think that's a stretch. I think uh, the death of oil has, has been misreported. And I think that carbon, you know, it's just a tax, let's face it. Well, the whole carbon discussion is a tax. And I'm not sure, you know, you're, nobody's actually using carbon. They're using carbon credits. Carbon's mm. produced. Carbon in the plant world, carbon is the number one thing in the soil. Plants suck it in and input it into the soil. That's what makes the world happen. Carbon's a really good thing. It's not a bad thing like we think. It's just it's not supposed to be up in the air. It's supposed to be down in the soil. And that's what plants do. That's why there's um, regenerative farming. That's why there's no-till farming. Those are, those are all very big deals. Yeah. All right. Let's talk about another asset class, which is the asset class of the future, or maybe it's the asset class of now, the cryptocurrencies. What is your view on crypto? Crypto is really cool. I think that it's a bifurcated market, if you will. I think that you, you have to look at crypto two ways. One is a store of value and one is a currency. And I think very specifically, Bitcoin, you know, which set the standard, let's face it, it's a store of value. The reason that these other coins have come out, and so there are a bunch of classes of coins. You got Bitcoin, which is like the gold, okay, of, of crypto. And that's literally a store of value, but it's, it's, it's slow. The validation across the blockchain is really slow in the crypto world. And so that's why you have Ethereum and others that are even faster. So those are the things that are going to be used as a currency. So you've got Bitcoin, I think, will we'll shake out as being the store of value, the gold part of the crypto world. I think things like Ethereum and, and others that are really fast and being designed for transactional purposes, they will become currencies. And then the rest of the, you know, the it coins, as they say, those things, that's what they are. They're just garbage. They'll come and go. Those are people trying to get rich quick. They're, most of them are pump and dump. They're not worth looking at. I think people need to be very careful. But Bitcoin is going to be the store of value. That's, that's how I look at it. And Ethereum and a few other select others will be the currencies. If you had to guess, when will there be a 40-act fund in crypto in the US? A 40-act fund? ETF I, or mutual fund? So mutual funds are allowed to invest in crypto in, in Bitcoin futures because they can't be stopped from doing that. A lot of funds hold over-the-counter funds of, of actual Bitcoin. I'm not sure there can ever be a 40-act of Bitcoin because of the, the way the laws are. It has to be a 33-act, if you will. So I, I don't think most of your audience knows the difference, but a 40-act is a mutual fund. A 33-act is what most commodities funds are, and just different tax status. You get a K-1 instead of a whatever else you get, whatever tax form you get. It's pretty simple. But the bottom line is... When do I think it'll be? I think it will be next year. We're out of time this year to have a Bitcoin fund, I think. But I think there will be one next year. And I actually can't say more than that because we've had filed for one. So I'm not, uh -huh. not going to okay, go cool. any further. Yeah. <laughs> All right, I'll stop. <laughs> 
All right, so all right, my next question, we're gonna get a little philosophical. I kind of, I love these questions. And um, of course the name of this podcast is The Weighing Machine. And again, it's really all about, you know, thinking long-term that over the long-term, the, the markets are a weighing machine. They're looking at valuations, they're looking at fundamentals. And of course the short-term is more about narratives and stories and emotion. Uh, that said, you know, so many people have come into the markets this year, which have been, there's a lot of things that brought them in. It's a more of a shorter term emphasis in the markets and more like traders than investors, but nonetheless, they're, they're going to be investors. So you've been around a lot of investment professionals and you've seen a lot of good ones and some not so good. What do you think are, well, first of all, who are some of the best traders and investors you've seen? What made them so? What do you think good traders and investors share and what do you think makes them different? That I just gave you like eight questions at once. You got 10 seconds. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go. Traders and investors. Traders, I, I've seen a lot of good and a lot of bad on, on both sides. I think what makes a good trader and the good traders that I know, and all of those guys are under the radar. You don't know their names. They're doing mm -hmm. really well. They either work for grain companies or banks or hedge funds, and they're they're just good. And and they're quiet. And the, the things about them is that they adapt and adjust very quickly to changing conditions. They don't have preconceived notions about anything. They go with the flow. They are people who take information in, process it quickly, can change their mind on a dime. Um, I always remember listening to Paul Tudor Jones once in an interview where he said he got up every single morning and looked at his book as if it were new, as if it were an investment slate. And if he would initiate a position in any of those things he was holding, he would keep it. And if he wouldn't initiate a position in any of those things he was holding, he'd get rid of it. It just that's how we looked at it. And so completely adaptable, not married to anything. And that's that's kind of I think what makes a good trader is they're they're really quick and they they're smart and they they just don't get hung up. They just they, they let go easily. Probably another key criteria, though, of course, is risk management, right? They would never bet the whole. I mean, a lot of people think traders are swashbuckling, betting everything like on a trade, but they're not. First and foremost, the good traders, you know, are defensive. Yeah. They, 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 they think about their downside first. They think the first question in every good trader's mind is how much can I lose, not how much can I make? Yeah. They see opportunity to make. And the next thing you think of is how much can I lose? How much might I lose? What is my risk parameter? Then you start making a plan about. And generally, if you're really smart, you're not thinking about how much you're going to make. You're thinking about a price objective that it's going to hit and you're going to get at. And then, then you figure out your size of the position, which is going to change based upon what the rest of your portfolio is for a quick trader. It's never going to be the same on any given day, what you're going to put in. So investors, the, the good investors I've seen, believe it or not, are a lot of really good registered investment advisors. And I'll tell you, you're one of them. You know, in your shop are several and they're patient. They have a disciplined approach, but it is preceded, I would have to say, by open-minded research. It's, you know, you can't go in and say, well, I don't like this asset class. You have to go in and say, wow, an asset class. Say, you know, marijuana is a perfect example, cannabis. When that came out, a lot of people missed out on a lot of money because they either were philosophically against it. Okay, that's a different set. Those people are gone. Or they just thought it was ridiculous. Well, guess what? If something is in the news over and over again, and there's an industry being built around it, you might think it's ridiculous, but you need to pay attention to it. And so mm -hmm. if, you, if you have open-minded research, that's, you know, and you, you've got a certain level of intelligence, due diligence that, that goes with, with whoever you are and whatever you do, and then you have a patient, disciplined approach, 
you're going to make money. Those are the good investors I've seen. The people who say, I see that corn is going sideways at 350 and it's been doing that for four years and I'm going to put 1% of my portfolio in and I understand it might do that for another four years. I don't know what the timing is. But what I do know is that the last two times corn was at 350, it went to $7. So I'm betting that it's going to do it again. Those people called us and said that to us. And guess what? In the past 10 months, those people were really happy. They're really happy people. So to me, that was discipline research. That's not very long term. I mean, they didn't know how long they would have to hold it. It was a multi-year time horizon. But some of them are adhering to the, the slogan, you know, wait, wait, drought out. So wait, W-A-I-G-H-T, wait, W-A-I-T. You get a drought, which is generally, you know, 99 out of 100 times when you get a, a crop issue and you get out because because of the price double and that's people rebalance. And we're, we're in a, we're in actually a unique situation now with grains where it's going to be a multi-year elevated price range in grains. We can't replenish the global grain supply this year, even with a perfect crop and the crop isn't going to be perfect. So grains are going to stay elevated for at least another year. All right. So again, for the traders and the, and the investors out there, do you have any resources you could recommend to them? Books, people to follow on Twitter, publications. I mean, again, a lot of people do have that shorter term orientation. What what should they be looking at or thinking about or reading to become better? You know, I think you can take your pick. I mean, there's so many good podcasts, yours being one of them. Thank you. So I'm ag centric, all right? I listen to AgriTalk. I listen to the AgriTalk podcast. And it's, you really have to be into ags to listen to that. They're on about 300 radio stations across the Midwest. People live on that stuff, as do I, but some people would just find it intolerable to listen to. So you have to, you know, find your interests and go for it and and look at people that you really respect and what they are doing. Follow them on Twitter. And there's a lot of static out there on Twitter and go for good Twitter feeds, people you know. I follow, for one, Jan Van Eck. I follow his Twitter because he posts not very often. And when he does, it's, you really should listen to this podcast. You really should read this academic article. Those are the kind of people you want to follow if you want to learn. If, you know, if, if you're following somebody that's posting every five minutes or even every day, you're probably not following the right person unless you're really into, you know, micromanaging some position. So in terms of Twitter can be a great resource. It can also be filled with static. Good podcasts. It depends what you're interested in. Look for them and, and how much time you have. There aren't enough hours in a day to listen to all the podcasts that, that are even halfway good. Books, that's a tough one. Not many people write books on specific markets. And I don't read them. I don't read most of them. So I read Merchants of Grain. I think the year I started working for Cargill. And mm-hmm. the book whose name is escaping me about all the different hedge fund traders that keep getting read. Market books. Wizards. Market Wizards. Thank you. That is a classic. Yeah. yeah. And so that's a great one for anybody interested in trading. But pick your topic. Pick the people you respect and follow and ignore the static. Just ignore the static that's out there in the news. The only thing you should use the news for is to catch what's what's a trend. Like I'll use cannabis as an example again. It was in the news every day. Most of what's in the news is completely irrelevant to a true investor. It doesn't mean anything. It's just late. It's late and it's not intelligent. It's just, yeah. it's just entertainment. Quick note on Market Wizards. I, I mean, I even think it works for people who are investors thinking long-term because to me, not only are you learning about the personalities, people who have obviously been successful, kind of that craft, but it's about discipline. It's about risk management. It's enabled to have a structure to make decisions without emotion. So I always recommend Market Wizards. Yeah, it's a great book. So Sal, it's been great to have you on the show today. How can listeners learn more about 2 Graham Trading? 
Tukrim.com is a great resource and you can explore around in there. And it's, that's, we've got a lot of good educational material. We get a lot of compliments about our, our website and you can follow us on Twitter. It's at Tukrim ETFs. So that's, that's a good spot to look and that's how you find us. Well, thanks for coming on the show, Sal. You know, again, you got to get back to Omaha. I can't wait. Little time at La Bavette again. Let's do it. I look forward to it. That was a <laughs> terrific meal. I remember it clearly and would love to go again. Absolutely. Well, great. Well, thanks. Well, for everybody else, uh, stay balanced, stay the course, and we will talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to The Weighing Machine, and thank you for your time and trust in Orion Advisor Solutions. Machine is hosted by Rusty Vanneman, Chief Investment Strategist at Orion Advisor Solutions, and me, Robin Murray, freelance writer and editor. If you have feedback or questions about our podcast today, please send us a note at rusty at orion.com. All opinions expressed by Rusty Vanneman and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and don't reflect the opinion of or endorsement by Orion, its affiliate subsidiaries, and its employees. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for legal, tax, and investment decisions. The opinions are based upon information that participants consider reliable.